Yama, Bo Spiram. Um, this is the fourth episode of Frontier War Stories. Um, and before I go any further, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners and also pay my respects and honour um, the the Frontier Warriors um, and and all the Aboriginal people on the um, within the first forty years who have lost their lives in um, a massive battle uh, that has set the precedent and the narrative of um, how Aboriginal people are treated and seen uh, into in today so i hope with this podcast that i can honor uh uh these individuals or these you know multiple warriors um and their families that do exist today um because it's such an important story um and i've had the honor to interview um uh, my guest today um on my uh, on the let's talk program that i host and on 989 fm so i'm very thankful that uh uh my next guest has made some time uh without further ado uh my guest this morning sorry my guest on the show uh today is libby connors who is the author of warrior a legendary leader dynamic life uh sorry a legendary a Legendary Leader's Dynamic Life and Violent Death on the Colonial Frontier. Uh, this is a book uh, about Dunderley, um, who was a Gubby Gubby warrior uh, from the Southeast Queensland area. Um, and I guess one of the reasons why, you know, I was really eager to get Libby on the program is because I live here in Brisbane. Um, and for the past six to seven years, um, I can you know, proudly say that I've been a part of some of the commemorations uh, for Dundley in what now is Post Office Square, uh, which we'll chat about uh, in the program as well. Um, he was a very, he was a very central figure um, in and around the, uh, these times that we'll talk about. Um, you know, and this is why his story is important. Um, this is why the many stories are that. Will, uh, will unfold and you know future podcasts are very very important um so you know libby thanks uh, for coming on the program oh thanks both for having me i um this is a great project remembering so yeah let me also pay <clears throat> my respects to all those who died in the frontier wars there as well as the 5th of january i i always commemorate that on anzac day um <clears throat> the victims of the frontier um incredible story and incredibly tragic mm -hmm. mm. and impoverished the whole of australia it's it's of course it's had immense harm on indigenous australia but i always think too how stupid of the colonial settlers you know the the the, the talent and the you know humanity that has been lost because they of their ignorance mm -hmm. um well, it's interesting that you uh, brought that, you know, like the humanity part up, you know, because I think um, what set the precedent, you know, uh, for that first 140 years was the dehumanisation of, you know, Aboriginal men, women uh, and society, you know, which sort of gave the okay, you know, for this, you know, what is what is the first 140 years of this country is very violent um, period of uh, in Australian history. Um, in some cases, it isn't as much uh, acknowledged. Um, there are lots of people, you know, doing amazing work at the moment to record the history like yourself, um, whether it's about these individuals or whether it's about the massacres as well. Uh, there's lots of research um, and lots of work put into those as well. Um, you know, I guess, like, I, I will start there as well. You know, yeah. that sort of, that, you know, that notion 
of dehumanization that set uh, the path forward for the first 140 years we'll talk about now um, in Australia really, really um, outlined sort of the relationship that has carried on uh, for today um, in this country as well. So could you sort of talk about how that sort of mindset uh, played out um, and, and, and what, what that mindset, uh, what events mm. actually occurred, you know, due to sort of that type of language being used? Yes. Um, yes, a, a lot's happened, I guess, since we did some of those, um, did that in, some interviews after um, my book on Dundley first came out. Um, I, I, guess, I guess one of the good things that has happened is that in Queensland schools now, it's a requirement of the curriculum that teachers, or well, they have the option actually, I suppose it's not mandatory, but they now have the option of teaching the frontier wars. So um, I have been asked to do over the years, some teacher training, because teachers just don't have the resources, but it's there mm. now as an option. And of course, committed teachers want to want to teach this stuff about the frontier wars. So yes, I, I have, it is um, really interesting. And I try to show them how, um, how the language of colonialism changed. As you said, it, it was a 140 year period. Well, 150 if we want to include some of the events of the 1930s in the Northern mm, Territory, mm -hmm. in which there was open violence, yeah, yeah, either yeah. by military or by police, or hidden violence, yeah. By, yeah, hidden violence by settlers. So, um, and I was really interested in, because I'm interested in legal history, I had focused in, I mean, I was very interested in formation of Queensland. So that's why I focused in on the 1840s and 1850s. And I wanted to understand how the law was being used and why they're, why they're never, you know, how could we understand the frontier in Brisbane when there never was a declaration of war? There was only one occasion when the military were ever called out. Oh, actually, I suppose there were more than one occasion, only one occasion in which they actually went out in battle formation. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, so I realised it's a really complex process that went on. And because Brisbane was being founded and opened up as a free settlement in the 1840s, and that was just a very interesting period in British politics in which they tried to say, we don't want to have an empire built on bloodshed. We don't want to have an empire built on slavery. We don't want to have an empire built on the blood of indigenous people. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the politics in Great Britain. And, but it did lead to the appointment of a governor who was, you know, told that after what had happened in Tasmania with, mm. with the black line there, that, you know, he must put an end to the violence. And he, so that was just the context of, of that extraordinary um, and um, sadly uh, unique too unusual a case of the Mile Creek trials where they finally said, okay, we're going to get the evidence here. And, we, and my goodness me, what a difficult trial it was. They had to have two trials because the all-white jury uh, refused to find the men guilty on the first occasion. Uh, and we're just, it's just lucky that we had a, a remarkable man as um, prosecutor in New South Wales who was determined to um, persuade the jury um, of what everybody in Sydney knew, that these, these uh, killings were taking place. So, um, and that did influence in events in Brisbane that um, 
white men knew, you know, the 1838 is just four years before um, they allow free settlers into Queensland. And in fact, at three years later, 1841, you have the first settlers, pastoralists, they weren't allowed into Brisbane itself, but they were allowed to go within uh, up to 50 miles of Brisbane. Mm. And they're coming on to, to Yagra land and um, Gubby Gubby land and, you know, all, all around um, Southeast Queensland, aware that if it gets back to Sydney, that Aboriginal people have been killed in the process, they could face a trial. So they're, um, you know, they're definitely affected by mm. that hanging. And, um, you know, the argument then amongst historians is, you know, don't they just find new ways to hide it? And I've certainly mm. looked at the evidence of the way white witnesses get leaned on and white witnesses just don't show up. And so I've looked at the people who are saying, yeah, we're going to prosecute for this. I've read their papers, people like commissioners of Crown Lands writing to the Attorney General in New South Wales. And I mean, it's quite sad. I, I looked at some of this material years ago when I was a postgraduate student. Uh, and uh, you're sitting in an archive and, and, and you're sitting in an um, archive building <laughs> with dusty old papers to be reading, um, you know, this older man, Commissioner Rolleston, middle-aged man, writing to Sydney, he was up on the Darling Downs and he just had come across this killing of Aboriginal women and children. And, and not one white man claimed to have any evidence about, mm. you know, nobody had witnessed it. Everybody just goes quiet. So, you know, there, there's very strong evidence about the way uh, whites leaned on one another. To, to not give evidence about what had happened. But it did mean that um, when uh, officials in Brisbane went into a panic one night um, and thought they, a rumour goes around Brisbane, 18, December 1849, that Aborigines are going to attack because the main Aboriginal village remained where Victoria Park is now, mm. um, right there in front of what is now the Royal Brisbane Hospital. And... Uh, just, you know, just where the exhibition grounds are. And uh, so the city of Brisbane hadn't yet reached Spring Hill, um, but there was one settler who'd gone up into that. Uh, he had built a house on the edges of Victoria Park, what we now call Victoria Park. And uh, he got in a panic one night and he started a rumour, came into town and spread a rumour around. And that was one occasion when the city of Brisbane believed they were going to come under attack from Aboriginal people. So at 10 o'clock at night, the uh, magistrates dra dragged out of bed. The um, chief constable, who's the head of police in those days, said, no, um, you know, I can't send my men out there. And so the magistrate says, well, I, I'll have to call out the local detachment of military. Mm. And so, yeah, sure enough, they... Um, they, they uh, marched out there and they um, discover, of course, that everybody at Victoria Park are sleeping uh, happily around their fires, but in a panic, somebody starts fires. And those men are subsequently, the, the white men who fired are subsequently arrested and tried by the Attorney General of New South Wales and um, found guilty of assault um, and that's the only time there was kind of an overt military confrontation near Brisbane. But there's all sorts of other events happening mm. um, uh, 
uh, on the fringes and people losing their lives and police claiming they're going out to arrest Aboriginal men. Um, and always it just seems they are unsuccessful and Aboriginal men die uh, while being arrested. Um, but there's the Attorney General reads some of these reports and issues warnings that the police should be grateful he's not going to prosecute them, but somehow they, they always get away with it. Um, so yeah, this is quite ex extraordinary when you're sitting there reading mm. about, yeah, the way um, colonialism was able to continue, even when there's an official order for the military to withdraw, because whites will just not provide the evidence for the law to work. So you have officials saying Aboriginal lives that would be protected. These are subjects of the Queen. We are not going to tolerate bloodshed. And then they just make the law impotent because you cannot successfully prosecute these whites because Aboriginal people can't give evidence in a court of law. They can give evidence, mm. but it won't be sworn evidence, so it's not going to persuade a jury. Um, yeah, so it was then interesting to see, um, from my perspective, I, you know, there's, there's overt, you know, really early on, the Agra to the west of Brisbane say, you know, we're going to war because they lost Moppy, their elder. Um, we're still not sure where or when it happened, but we have got descriptions of how uh, Moppy, who'd been a really important figure um, within the First Nations around Brisbane, you know, he makes it into settler accounts from penal colony days when, mm. when Brisbane was a penal station. Um, you know, they, they knew that Moppy was one of the key elders that Aboriginal people looked up to and he was mm. renowned as a fighter. Um, but once uh, he's killed in a confrontation with settlers, his sons then say, well, um, we're, we're not just going to get payback. We're going to keep you off our country. We're going to do all we can to stop you getting to the Darling Downs. And any whites who travel on what the whites regard as the, uh, well, it's become the Warrigal Highway, but um, it was the main road they used. It actually... Today, the railway line going Ipswich to Rosewood and onto Lockyer and Helladon mm -hmm. uh, basically um, matched the old road, and so they held up. Um, they held up successfully, and so the Battle of One Tree Mountain is when they mm -hmm. successfully blockaded at the foot of the Toowoomba Range. Um, so, and that's Maltogra. They kept it going. And, yes. and, and So that, yeah, Maltogra, mm -hmm. the son of was so, what was the. Mm -hmm third son of Moppy um, mm. and uh, so I've looked at some of the letters I know that the McConnells who founded um, basically the townships of Esk and Tagulawa were all on the cattle run that the McConnells claimed and they certainly give us some descriptions of, of um, incidents mm. where Maltagara had mm. um, successfully um, barricaded uh, some of the pastoralists into their huts, they couldn't, mm. they couldn't travel. And the other person who gives us some good accounts is the explorer Ludwig Leichhardt. Mm. Uh, he came up and uh, he talked about um, uh, 1843 to 1844, he's, he's, he's traveling through this country and he's just describing it so beautifully. He just said it was such beautiful country, the whole Brisbane Valley. Um, and finding rare plants and new flowers and you know he was loving it and then he just gets trapped because <laughs> it, he says you know there's war going on I can't leave 
uh, because Aboriginal people are uh, waging war. Mm. And um, so he kind of gets trapped for some days until it was safe for him to travel. Yeah, and then um, 1845, Multagara did um, an assault. Um, he, he, again, as I said, he had barricaded up a family, a white family, and um, was was kind of demanding tribute from them. He said, "I'm not going to let you out unless you, you know, give me so much, so many goods." And um, what he didn't know was that uh, late at night. Um, a second group of squatters had arrived at this settler's hut. And so when he launched an attack the next morning, more rifles pointed out those hut windows than he was expecting. And well, we think this is what ha has happened. Mm. Um, we've got different accounts. We've got one settler account. We've got one police report that's pretty vague. And uh, sadly, Multagara uh, died um, mm. from the gunshot wounds and word made it across the range to Dundley because the young Yagara fighters to get away from the police and the whites when they tried to track them headed over the range. So what is now the Brisbane Forest Park and Mount mm -hmm. Glorious? Yeah, quite steep mountain country. Mm -hmm. The white horses had not yet made it over. So um, David McConnell, the, the settler at Eskintagulua, he, he records when he finally gets his horse over that mountain range. Mm -hmm. um, but they, yeah, they, they didn't have a way over at this stage. So, so Maltokra and his, and his fellow warriors used to head up uh, over that country and then, you know, get a bit of a reprieve around the Pine River Valley until whites had come down, police had left and then they'd go back onto country again mm. it's so, interesting oh sorry yeah no or, or also, it, it's interesting um that in this story of dundali you bring up Maltagara, um and you know one of the things that you that you record in your book as well is that queensland i uh, sorry brisbane and then the sort of the southeast pocket um was one of the longest um frontier um battles or conflicts um, lasting around 40 years, so a couple of decades. Um, and yeah. so, you know, I guess the story of Maltagora and Mopi and maybe Dundali are sort of intertwined because of the expansion of the colony as well. Um, could you tell mm. us, could you sort of speak on, um, I guess sort of that transfer, I guess, as well then, you know, you just sort of mentioned, um, you know, Mopi and they would sort of jump over the mountain, sort of get away and hide as well. Was there much interaction uh, with Dundalee as well? And just on that really quickly, I know there was a book that just came out um, about Maltagara and that battle as well. Um, and I'm hopefully wanting to, to, to get those, uh, the two authors uh, on this program as well later down the track. But yeah, so were yeah. there interactions and meetings uh, with Maltagara and Dundalee? Oh, I'm sure there were, because we've got accounts of um, really big, gatherings of all the First Nations at different sites. Um, many of those reports though are from before um, 1842. Um, and then we have some really interesting ones because big meetings, I mean, uh, up at Tyro, which is on the Mary River. So between Gympie and Maryborough, really big meeting of all the Northern peoples because mm. of events that had happened at Kilcoy with the Kilcoy poisoning, that's 1842, that's February 1842. And we know that there was a meeting uh, near Woodford um, in the aftermath of the Kilcoy poisoning. That was April. And then May, we know there's a big meeting at Tari. So 
we've only got accounts of two big meetings, but the evidence is that they were happening all over the place as Aboriginal people heard this news of, of the mass poisoning of people at, at Kilcoy there. Um, so yeah, there's very organised um, authority. You know, there's the First Nations, I mean, I, I, I'm really grateful that that language has come out of the Indigenous community because it's a much better way of describing the traditional authority and organisation of Aboriginal society. It's a it was a very decentralised society, but it was still a really well-ordered society mm. with um, people knowing who had authority and responsibility for one another and for different events and actions. So, uh, and it's very democratic. They meet and discuss, you know, has, has this hurt or this harm been avenged? Can we now all forgive one another, you know, and resume? or is there still um, payback? And I know I've met some young Aboriginal people who hate me using the word payback, um, but I just don't know what other word to use because it is the word uh, that is used everywhere to describe you know, the Aboriginal sense of law and order, that you had to restore order and equality amongst all. So if hurt, you have to, um, there's a need for mm. equal hurt on oh. whoever has committed an offence. Well, I remember when we spoke last time, you know, one of the reasons, um, you know, I guess, you know, for payback or for, you know, the return of, of punishment or whatever was, um, or, you know, one of the instigators, um, fact, instigating factors were, was due to the fact that, you know, Aboriginal law was being broken. Yeah, yes. And it's not respected. Just, yeah, yeah le uh, pa payback is just the term we use for legal punishment. The, mm. the, in it, and that what is a legal and fair punishment usually was decided in a meeting um, of First Nations people, depending on who had been harmed. And because so many different people, different tribal nations, First Nations were hurt through that Kilcoy poisoning, because that was a really big gathering. We don't even know how many people died. One, you know, different accounts say 30, others say 60 people died. And um, that's why different First Nations had to come together and say, what are we going to do? How do we respond to this? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it might be a strange word to our ears today, but it is just legal punishment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in Aboriginal law, the community gets a say in what's a fair mm -hmm. and just punishment. So there's more community engagement other than in the formalised English law. Mm -hmm. um, so people own it and, and that was what made Aboriginal society so successful and its longevity mm. was because, you know, people felt a part of it and a part of decision-making. Definitely. Um, and, and we'll just get back to that part. So um, there's meetings happening um, just after what's happening. Sorry, Kilcoy? Was it? Kilcoy. Kilcoy, Kilcoy yeah, was so a pastoral station where people were poisoned, were poisoned by white shepherds. Um, and so this, and so now there's meetings of you know the mob from the north, um, north, north around the southeast Queensland area. Um, there was meetings in around Woodford as well, um, you know, and this is in response to to that, you know. Um, yes. And there, and there may be some indication that maybe Multaga and Dundalee uh, were maybe interacting or were at these gatherings as well. Um, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Yes. So I'm sure. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I haven't got them to, named as being yeah. together at a gathering, but, but that was just the way traditional Aboriginal society operated. And we do know that um, uh, Maltagra was crossing the range to escape police onto mm. country. 
that we know Dunsley also frequented. And even more so, I, I speak, although I haven't, I can't, you know, give you a precise source. The reason why I feel that it's so um, likely that, I mean, I, no, I, I shouldn't say it that way. I am sure that Dunsley and Montagra knew one another because mm. there were such good networks across the, among the First Nations. Mm. And then in, and I did say Montagra um, ended up dying in a, Raid. I think I said yeah. earlier, 1845. It was actually 1846. Mm -hmm. And soon after that, Dundley launches an attack on white settlers. And I've, I've, I haven't, I, I can't prove a direct connection. But the timing is so interesting that within four weeks of the death of Multagra, who was an important man uh, amongst the Agra, large First Nation people of southern Queensland who's killed by at the hands of settlers at, mm -hmm. you know wounded in a shootout um that Dundley then launches an attack on a settler so his other attacks he had um had been small-scale attacks uh on white men on his country so he had mm. he had a uh, been involved in an attack where one shepherd had been wounded in 1843. He wasn't involved in another um, attack until 1845 when he helped push missionaries out of Burpengary. They'd begun building uh, huts and had planted their fields and um, that missionary gets away. He's wounded but he get, he's allowed to escape but instead Dundley focuses on destroying the crops taking the provisions out of the hut and then burning the hut saying, you know, it's so clearly a message saying not in our country. Mm. Um, uh, um, and that man's allowed to escape. So nobody had died. No white man had died at Dundley's hands in 1846. And then in October, 1846, he launches an attack on a station, a very vulnerable station at the foot of uh, approximately Mount Me. It's on the upper Caboolture river and uh, very hilly mountainous country. And there's a big, a big well, um, six young men, I suppose I don't know their ages, six warriors, men of, of military age, go in and they take, they are obviously, it's six because it's two men for each white adult on the station. There's only two adult men and one adult woman who's the uh, housekeeper servant of the pastoralist and his um, station hand. And... That's all. There's other. There are children on the station. They aren't touched. Neither mm. the what. There's a one. There are three white children and one small Aboriginal boy also living on that station. And so Dundee is really precise. That you know. That's why it looks like to me. I. I mean, it'd be. You know. I hope one day there'll be descendants in the Aboriginal community who know about this attack and can explain us all to us. But to me, it looked like. Um, payback for what had happened to Multagra, mm. um, which had been, you know, one, uh, one station that Multagra had been attacking and now Dundley goes in, okay, we'll take out this one. Um, but uh, because a white woman died in that attack and the pastoralist died, um, it became a real, you know, cause celeb amongst the whites. This was proof of, you know, how barbaric and savage Aboriginal people were, but in particular Dundley, that even though Dundley didn't, um, actually, um, he wasn't responsible for killing anyone. Other young men are sent in, mm. but um, the whites say no. Dundley was the main organizer. They see his role in the community. There's enough reports of other 
um, Aboriginal people listening to him and following his instructions. Mm. And so, and that was the same with the attack on the missionaries. Nobody saw Dundley raise a weapon against anyone, mm. but the missionary who survived says, I could hear Dundley speaking. Dundley seemed to be giving instructions and organizing the men mm. to come in and raid my hut. So, um, yeah, this is kind of the, the start of Dundley's um, legend. Um, how, long, and how long in between from the beginning to um, when he passed? Yeah, he, he, uh, he makes it into white records as early as 1841. Mm -hmm. um, but in that year, his role is really different. He was a, he's described as a young man. He's, he is already married by 1841. Um, but he goes in as a negotiator. He, he, you know, he mm -hmm. says, um, I, I, and in that, that year, he was, went to meet with missionaries to say, please come onto our country. We want your crops. We will help you, you know, um, set up on our country because we want the benefit of your food supply. And um, so he's a negotiator, he's a diplomat. So again, he was obviously, although he was young, he was sent by his elders, he clearly had authority and he, he doesn't go on his own. He goes with another man and Babry. And, um, but now in 1843, he was working Differently, this is after the Kilcoy poisoning, and he seems to be being have be part of his training as a warrior, as a fighter rather than a diplomat. And again, in that attack, he went in with a, an elder called Kembeo, and um, it was Kembeo who successfully speared the shepherd. Uh, the shepherd says, "Oh, Dundley wasn't very, you know, his spear didn't even he he grabbed Dundley's spear." Uh, after it had been thrown. So it wasn't thrown with real force. So that's why I think Dundley must have been in training. He wasn't, in 1843, his heart didn't seem to be in it. Mm. Um, but he, he, he is enacting um, Aboriginal law on his country in 1845 when he evicts the missionaries and in 1846 when, you know, I, it could have been because of Maltagra's death or it, perhaps it was because of um, the Kilcord poisoning. I mean, we don't know. Um, there was there was enough harm have had been done to his community by 1846 for their, him to have many motives. Mm. And I guess the other reason why I said with such confidence that he would have known Maltagra is that the the system of um, intermarriage across the district and the system of young men's initiation and the um, you know the the skin identification that. Mm. Um, even if you're, um, you know, he, he, if he's Dala Nation, later works really closely with Gubby Gubby people. Um, uh, we know that Maltagara was Yagra, but they they all shared their their skin or their moiety across the region, mm. and that is a really important affinity that um, yeah Aboriginal people had with one another. So that that their kinship the kinship system meant you know he. He had brothers and cousins, even if they're not biological brothers, they're skin brothers, mm. um, or what today we would call um, cousins, he would have seen as brothers as well. So um, lots of connections, I think, uh, around the whole um, area from, from, from Meribra to the Darling Downs to, mm. to uh, northern New South Wales. Mm. Can you tell us some of the... Um yeah, some of the stuff uh, done. Other other stuff, Dunley was involved in. You know, raids on camps, uh, on partials and stuff as well. Yeah, well, um, 
his next attack was 1847. And again, it was on, it actually wasn't on the station itself, uh, but on some shepherds working in the outer um, boundaries of a, of a station. And it wasn't far from this attack of 1846. 1846 is on what the whites call Gregor Station, up Kabulcha River. The next attack is on um, what the station at Whiteside, um, but the outer grounds of what Whiteside was claiming. So that's um, country that's possibly underwater today under the Pine Rivers Dam, but yeah, what we call the Pine Rivers area now. And the, the districts of Whiteside and, and Griffin, which was the family living there, and, and Petrie and Marumba, this, is all, this was all in the 1840s part of Whiteside Station. Mm -hmm. And uh, this attack, I think, was about payback for the assaults on Aboriginal women. Um, mm -hmm. Earlier in 1847, after uh, the new governor, Governor Fitzroy, has, has succeeded Governor Gipps. Um, and as I said, when Gipps left, the, the town police became quite um, law, <laughs> uh, you know, they're, this is when there's a number of deaths of Aboriginal men at the hands of police because the police say, oh, you know, they're, they're more confident that they'll, um, that they won't be questioned by Sydney, officials in Sydney. In fact, it gets to a point where Fitzroy says, this is too much. There are too many shootings going on, shootings of young Aboriginal men around Brisbane. Um, I want an inquiry. And um, uh, Captain Wickham is the senior police magistrate in Brisbane. And he does all he can to thwart the inquiry. Uh, there are four men appointed to investigate attacks on the Aboriginal people. But um, despite Wickham's efforts to kind of close the inquiry down and make it ineffective, there is evidence given about um, abductions of Aboriginal women from Stradbrook Island. Um, and, um, and separately, another a pastoralist, this David McConnell, a man from Tagulawa-esque, he also attempted to prosecute one of his servants because he witnessed his assault of an Aboriginal girl who was only 10 or 11 years old. And um, McConnell as a, I was about to say a good Christian, but McConnell is frank in his letters about his uh, violence towards Aboriginal people. but. Somehow sexual assaults of children were a step too far for McConnell and he tries to prosecute this servant. And it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. It was so rare for somebody of McConnell's authority within the white community. He's a very wealthy man. Um, and in this case though, the servant won and he, he was exonerated. But why that case mattered was between the police inquiry just hearing very broadly, look, there's been assaults of Aboriginal women, white men are stealing them. When in these days, because because people didn't talk about sexual matters, nobody says, or it's very rare for anybody used a term such as rape or sexual assault. What they often said was they stole Aboriginal wives. That, that was mm. just the euphemism for saying, essentially, yeah, sexual violence is happening. And uh, so we hear broad evidence about it, and we hear that it's it's women from from Stradbroke who were the victims. And then we've got this one case where we know it was a young girl also from Stradbroke Island. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, yeah, so some months later, the reason why I think that it may have been this evidence of sexual violence prompting Dundley is because of the men involved. 
why on this station did he single out the three Sawyers? The three Sawyers, that's just an old-fashioned name for loggers. They were going in to mm. cut timber. And I think it's because the men involved, um, the inquiry in Brisbane had heard it was, it was both uh, Sawyers as well as men in the boat's crew, uh, the harbour master boat's crew. So when um, sailing vessels came into Moreton Bay, they couldn't always make it up the Brisbane River. And so they had a, um, a harbour master's crew of convicts and sometimes it was convicts in the boat, sometimes it was Aboriginal crews would then direct the boats mm -hmm. up the river. So, and we hear it's the harbour master's boat crew involved in these assaults and we hear that it's particular Sawyers. And it's just really interesting, the men who are attacked in 1847. The main witness who survives, I think, is one of the um, men involved because, oh, we did have one name, but it was named Smith. <laughs> and there's a Smith involved in abductions by Aboriginal women and there's a Smith out at this logging camp. Um, and uh, the, the, of the three men who were attacked, only one survived uh, to be a witness against Dunderley subsequently. Um, one thing that I didn't emphasise in the book, which is kind of um, just an interesting anecdote, but uh, Smith survived, but he never spoke properly again. Dunderley had, um, mm. well, again, there's no clear evidence <laughs> of Dunderley wielding a weapon, <laughs> but we do know this man had been hit in the head with a nulla nulla and he lost his front teeth. <laughs> so, and I think this helps explain um, some of the problems he has in court is that he can't talk properly. Um, and uh, Niccolo, uh, a young man from Meribra, subsequently gets off. Um, he is arrested for this case, over this assault. Um, but he, he gets off in a court of law uh, because they, they can't prove that they've got the right man. Yeah. Um, but also I think it probably helped that Smith couldn't talk properly and so mm. there's confusion about names as well. Uh, yeah, so that was one more. And then another case that, um, again, uh, no, no um, Aboriginal man is named, but we know it, this is an event that takes place on Robbie Island, where there's several leading Aboriginal men, both Dunderley and Billy Barlow are associated with Robbie Island, and they both mm. have authority um, in, uh, amongst the Gubby Gubby. But there it was protecting young Aboriginal kids. So it was common for the white settlers to employ young um, Aboriginal teenagers. Um, and one fisherman, white fisherman around Morton Bay had employed a couple of um, young Aboriginal boys to help him collect oysters. Incredible bounty of seafood uh, taken from Morton Bay in these years that, you know, today Morton Bay has been so degraded, it's, it's mm. gobsmacking uh, to think of the, the oyster beds around the bay, um, such luxury. And uh, yeah, so this uh, fisherman then mistreated the Aboriginal youths. He'd been physically violent towards them. So they, they leave this guy's boat and head to Bribey Island and tell the, the young men, the young warrior men on Bribey Island, this has happened to us. And so a party of Aboriginal men go out to meet uh, Gray, Gray was the white man's name, who'd moored near the island. Gray goes into an absolute panic. He doesn't understand. They're just coming to talk to him and say, why have you assaulted our young people? Um, and he points a gun. So one of the Aboriginal warriors just picks up an oar. He doesn't pick up a nulla nulla. He hasn't taken weapons. He picks up an oar that Gray has left on shore and hits Gray over the head. 
And then Gray's crew member goes into a panic and he flees with the boat and eventually gets back to Brisbane to report it. So this is another example, not of Dundley as some aggressive uh, man, you know, inflicting violence on whites, but a man protecting, so we've heard, uh, protecting Aboriginal women, protecting, avenging Multugra and now protecting mm. And then protecting uh, his fa uh, his country as well, you know, like destroying his crops. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yes. So, uh, so when when in the timeline does Dundalee get caught and then you know, sadly gets hung? Yeah. Okay. So, um, First Nations politics continues around Brisbane. So, the First Nations, even before whites came, had all sorts of. Uh, they had both. Um, political contests and they had um, sporting contests and of course they had their dancing and singing and this would all happen at big regional gatherings. That all went on even as the number of whites is increasing in Brisbane. Mm -hmm. uh, so by about 1854 we're up to a couple of thousand whites. Um, Aboriginal people would still have outnumbered the whites in the town but um, yeah so 1850 Three, there's a meeting, he, he has a, a fight, he's involved in a fight, um, uh, well, the Southeast Freeway at Stones Corner sort of runs up. Mm. You can see the park It's in there. your book. Yeah, John Steele reckons that's where this all took place. And, um, and, um, that's not that one yeah. in the book that's on um, Cornwall Street? Yeah, Cornwall yeah, and Juliet. Yeah. Cornwall and Juliet, yes. There, somewhere near yeah, there. somewhere near there, yeah. Yeah. Um, and um also before we go further like these gatherings um and sometimes these battles as well uh, that happened um could you sort of explain i guess in your own way how they would differ from i guess a, a, a battle or a war or something outside of outside of the aboriginal context or, or, or yes yeah. So the the whites who reported on this gathering at, at Juliet Street Cornwall Street area they did call it a battle, and it was a battle between the Bribey Island people and the Logan people. And I think they probably had some other allies. You know, they would sometimes urge, you know, if they were then mm. friends with the Brisbane people, the Brisbane people come out and side with Logan, or and, and the younger people might have come to support the Bribey Islanders. But yeah, White's called it a battle, but um, it's very organized form of fighting. Mm. When there's a disagreement between two First Nations, you have headmen who organise these fights and they do it according to strict rules. And so at the gathering at 1853, um, we know that one of the Bribey Island men dies. And this is quite unusual. Usually it'd be an injury, but on mm. this occasion, um, one of the Logan people successfully inflicted a blow that led to, we know it was Diamond's brother, it's how it's reported. So Diamond is another one of the important Bribey Island men, known it to be a fighting man. Mm. That means the elders then said, okay, this is a halt. They then decide that's the end of this fight. They will go away and they will regroup and finish the fight another time. And I think that might have been why Dunderley came back to Brisbane in 1854. There were other um, meetings uh, taking place around Brisbane amongst First Nations. Something like that brought Dunderley in. He also decided while he was coming into town uh, to take to agree to help a white settler build his hut uh, down. And that's when he gets caught? Yeah, yeah. Well, just, see, uh, up to this... just before that, sorry yeah. as well, um, you mentioned that, you know, when the soul follower um, 
gets hit, you know, the, the elders in the group say, hey, let's stop and we'll yes. continue this another time. You know, and then you have people recording this as a battle. You know, do, yes. do, do, like in their recordings, what do they say in terms of, you know, these files agreeing to stop the battle and maybe continue another time? Because I guess, you know, in the eyes of them, you know, this would be sort of a, a really unusual way to sort of have a battle or carry out a battle, then, you know, come back and we'll continue another time as well. Uh, yes, this this particular battle, I mean, it was not only recorded in... Oh, no, no, like, 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 like just in, in terms of, you know, um, I guess if, if, non, if, 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 if the white fellas had a battle, you know, I'm sure, yeah. you know, I'm sure the context of a, of a battle in somebody else's eyes would be bloodshed. You know, this is an yes. organised, safe spot. Somebody got hurt yes. seriously, subsequently sadly passed away. The, 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 the battle stopped, halted, and they agreed upon another time. <clears throat> you know, like just in the context of what a battle is, I guess, to other people, you know, mm. um, I guess certain would describe a, a battle as a bloodshed, you know, till the other team or the other the opposition submit. Completely defeated. You know, yeah. Completely defeated, you know, and I'm sure these yeah. two groups were equal in every single way, somebody got, you know, hurt very badly and then it was stopped. You know, yes. what does that sort of say about, uh, sort of say to you about how um, it, intelligent or how sort of, I don't know, you know, that they would conduct themselves in, in, in a way like this in a battle? Yes, I mean, it, it, it's, it's proof <coughs> of how ordered Aboriginal society is and how fair that there's, there's no intent on the Bribe Islanders uh, to wipe out the Logan people, and there's no intent of the Logan people to wipe out the Bribe Islanders. There's some matter that they've gone to battle over to resolve. So this particular battle wasn't reported particularly respectfully in the local press. It was reported in the Sydney press. It was unusual in that they actually accompanied it with an illustration that showed, mm. you know, whites, whites were really impressed by these battles because this one took place at night time. It was incredibly impressive to watch, I gather, with the fires and the torches all round to illuminate the field. And so Whites loved it for its theatre, um, but um, other occasions I've got Whites reporting on these battles more respectfully, where it's... Um, uh, so one of the Archer brothers was uh, allowed... He was invited by the elders, mm -hmm. in fact, to come and watch it. And he said he compared it with a medieval tournament or a joust you know, um, where your, your key fighters go in to fight and then there'll be a, de a victor declared at the end. Mm. And in which case, if one is declared a victor over the other, that usually means there'll be a reply battle, you know, mm. um, because always Aboriginal society wants to get back to equilibrium, to get back to fairness, to get back to, you know, everybody's got a right to be here. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I know I'm not expressing the traditional philosophy correctly. And I'm sure oh, no, yeah, I just wanted to sort of... Other yeah, yeah, definitely just put it in context as well because I think that's like a really interesting part um, in the book as well. But then also just in general in terms of how people describe what a battle is, you know, mm. depending on you know, their geographic um, background and where they may come mm. from, you know, and in particular, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, uh, white men in these times recording them, you know, who may, may, may have been a first generation person born here or may have come from, you know, England themselves and their background knowledge in terms of what a battle is. I sort of wanted to paint that picture. Yes. Um, yes. but then I guess I think you were talking just about Dunderley and he took up some work to help build a cabin. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could just make one last point. Oh, sorry, about yeah, yeah, sorry, the fight, sorry, yeah. Was um, you're right. In fact, the person who reported on that 1853 fight, or was it 54? I'm struggling to remember now, but it um, doesn't matter. Um, I think he was a newcomer. I think he, and um, oh. that's why he's he loves the visual aspect. But other accounts, it's the skill and ability of the fighters mm. that the, the, the Europeans record. Very athletic, their ability to evade spears and clubs. You know, it, it, I gather it was great to watch as as for, for the athleticism of the men involved. Um, so, yeah, there were, there were plenty of European accounts that were really respectful because they mm. were in awe of, of Aboriginal sporting and athletic ability. Uh, and the fighting was a bit like an art martial art, yeah, a form of martial arts rather mm. than intending to to kill people. It's to settle a dispute rather than setting out to necessarily cause bloodshed. Mm. Um, yeah, so sorry, Bo, your next question. Oh, we, we, we just sort of fast forwarded. So this is around yeah. this time Dundalee's coming back. Yeah. Um, he's taken up a bit of work as well to help build a cabin, yeah. I believe you said, yeah. Yes. Um, sometimes whites went up to Bribey Island to barter um, because they wanted fresh fish or whatever. Mm. And they were really aware that the Bribey Islands were really self-sufficient. But obviously there were times the Bribey Islanders wanted European goods. So we've got occasions where Bribey Islands are signing on to do bit work with Europeans. Mm. So Billy Barlow goes shepherding for a while. We know some Bribey Island men worked worked uh, in the Harbour Master's crew at times. Dundley had also been uh, assisting a fisherman in 1853, a fellow by the name of Wilson. Uh, but then 1854, when he's coming in, I think he was coming in for an Aboriginal meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the process, he decides he'll do work for a bricklayer called Mason. So there's, they've begun work on a cottage. Um, some people, uh, yeah, say Dundley was in the midst of chopping down a tree on this suburban allotment down in near Anne and Wickham Streets mm-hmm. um, and uh, now very much inner city Brisbane, but back then um, White's only just moving out that way. And, um, excuse me, the police couldn't identify him. Mm. Uh, so the police needed a local Aboriginal man to come and point him out. And they also uh, went in in plain clothes because they And this knew... is the part I saw in the book as well that I think is interesting because there's a couple of stories um, that you find from records of how they actually captured Dunderley as well. You mentioned yes, the book. And yeah. Sorry, yeah, I'm just, I'm just gotta, it's just the funny part of the book where, you know, certain people are sort of owning up to saying we did this and then there's another description. Sorry, I'll let you tell the story. Yeah. No, no, it's an important part. You know, it's the dilemma for the historian. It was a big deal. In 1854, it was a very big deal amongst the white community that they'd finally captured Dundley because, Mm. yeah, you know, his first assault had been 1843. So he's been officially on the run um, for years. In fact, the reality was Brisbane police didn't try to capture him because they didn't know what he looked like. And then when he does come into town, they are aware of all the stories about how strong and powerful he was. But there was a reward out on his head for £50, which is a significant amount of money in 1854. It was a, a labourer's annual wage, more than a labourer's annual mm. wage. So we have the white man involved in his capture, a man by the name of Baker, absolutely putting his own role in the centre of it. But other accounts make you realise that um, Wumbunga, I'm, I'm not sure I'm saying that name correctly, but Wumbunga was um, a local Aboriginal man who... Um, obviously um, was an enemy of Dundalese, uh, politically speaking, and um, 
uh, he, he aids Baker. Uh, they also, um, the town police had no way, I mean, today, you know, <laughs> with, with motor vehicles and bustles, it's pretty easy to get from Ann Street to, to, the, to Queen Street. The watch house was in Queen Street. So, um, but the town police with this huge man, Dunderley was very tall. We don't know precisely, but he must mm. have been above six foot tall. The average, you know, white man and police officer in this period would have been under 5'10". 5'10 would have been tall in, in this period. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, I still speak in feet and inches. <laughs> I'm not sure what that all is in centimetres. But um, they, they, they need a dray. And so they have to commandeer a dray. They wrap him in chains because they're so fearful of him. Mm -hmm. Still, when they get up to um, the watch house, so the watch house was part of the old convict barracks. The convict barracks had an archway um, and as they get him off the dray and put him in through the arches, apparently Dunderley then attempts to escape despite the fact that he's all in chains and stands in the archway and uh, uh, tries to get away, but the chains are too great. But mm. yeah, there's this last amazing resistance on Dunderley's. Well, it's not the last, there's more resistance goes on while he's in the jail mm. waiting his trial. Mm. Yeah. How long was he um, on trial before um, he, he, he gets hung? Yeah, he was really unlucky in the sense that um, he was unlucky that he got caught because the police, you know, they... they also, also so, sorry, own. we sort of skipped the part where, you know, um, in your book, you say there's a few accounts where, um, you know, the, the police officers wrestled Dunderley to the ground, but then you're like, well, hey, wait a minute, he's a large, strong man, they would have needed help. So there's sort of a bit of a lie who caught him. Yeah, yes. We don't know just yeah. what role precisely Wumbunga played. Did he only mm. identify or did he also um, help? Uh, because he would have known Aboriginal manoeuvres. And, you know, mm. the Europeans weren't good at that. I've got another account where a white constable who went out to watch the attack when the military went out to Victoria Park, and he kind of says to the authorities, there's no way I was going to do anything. You know, they would have... An Aboriginal mm -hmm. man could have struck me dead in a second, you know. They, mm. they were so quick. Um, with the traditional fighting methods. Yeah. Um, mm. so, um, so, yeah, that's why we're not sure. The accounts are a bit funny with Baker boasting of his role. The police also want to claim for the reward, so they mm. play out their role, um, mm. then I think. And, and, and I know, like, around, around these times as well, um, it was hard to sort of identify who the person was as well. You know, like, um, I was like the other night, um, I, I found a link uh, online to watching Jendamara's uh, Wall. Oh, um, yes. Um, and like half the people didn't know who he was as well, you know, and the, yeah. sadly when they killed him, the head that they had in England, uh, sorry, in Perth was the head of another warrior and they, sh and they shipped these, I think, to a private gun owner's um, um, collection, which is like very right. disgusting. Um, mm. But yeah, like, you know, so, so in this time, you know, there, there was the myth behind who these individuals were rather than sort of the mm. identity and how to sort of spot who these people were as well. So the, the majority of time when they needed to sort of capture uh, these individuals or track, you know, these groups of sort of these band of warriors, you know, that they had to sort of use the smarts and sort of um, the knowledge of, of Aboriginal people as well to identify what mm. they look like or to know the the skill set and their and their fighting ability as well. Um, I just I just thought mm. I just wanted to bring that part up as well. Um, and yeah, because I, and I, because, I, yeah, sorry. No, it's a good point. I was struck by it that 
So many of the important Aboriginal men around Brisbane are only arrested uh, because there's an Aboriginal person prepared to identify them. The, the town police were pretty useless. They, they, didn't, they didn't go much beyond the town boundaries. A lot of them weren't mounted. You know, they were just foot police. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, um, I forgot who I had on the... Uh, I've had a chat to in the past as well. Um, and they described sort of the, the, the difference between... Um, you know, uh, the native police um, and the treatment between the Aboriginal... And the infantry. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. know, um, where some would be intense, some would be just around a campfire, some would be on horses. In some instances, they will be if they go on long distances, but, you know, like the sort of, you know, um, yes, inequality within that as well. But I guess just back on to uh, getting back to Dunderley mm. as well, you know, so he sadly has a failed attempt to get out, um, what is it, weeks or months before he was trying home? Yeah, yes, he was a re the the Supreme Court had to come up from Sydney to host the to, the to preside at trials in Brisbane. So they had just left. It was May. He was arrested in May and um sort of the day after the Supreme Court, you know, uh, entourage had had headed back. That many had to wait till November. So he was in that horrible old jail which had been the female factory in convict days mm. through the Brisbane winter. It just would have been so lonely and alienating. And the jail keeper reported that he was a troublemaker in the jail. So <laughs> in those days, the jail was just comprised of big male wards. So a whole lot of men in the one ward. Um, but the jail keeper is able to get approval to transfer Dunderley to isolation. And they were horrible. I think. And, Even and if Dunderley was... Yeah. Yeah. In your book, you mentioned, you know, because he's such a large man, over six foot, um, yeah. the cells that he's moved to are made for women and he, he can only just sort of fit in or lie down? Yes, the story was, um, well, I just looked at the measurements and thought, how yes. could he lie down? You know, he'd only mm. just managed to lie down. Um, so, uh, yeah, and another, another source the jailkeeper reports that they kept Dunderley in chains while he, whereas normally once you're inside the female factory, you, they removed your manacles and so on. Um, but they were just so scared of him that the jailkeeper thought that, you know, if Dunderley had um, continued to resist, that they would have over, he would have overpowered the guards. So mm -hmm. they, the treatment of him must have just been, you know, I just think for a man, you know, used to an evening by a fire with his family to be stuck in that horrible uh, old jail for those months on end, um, yeah, horrible experience. So then... And then he's only... Yeah. Yep, so, oh no, yeah, so, so then they're getting ready for the, say the Supreme Court was from Sydney was coming up to do the trial. Um, and he's was one of the last sort of open... Uh, hangings as well? Yeah, so um, they do have a trial. It's held in what used to be the convict chapel at the top of the convict barracks. So uh, this is all taking place in a building in Queen Street that was demolished in the 1870s or 80s. Mm. Um, and uh, he, yeah, he's found guilty and um, not surprisingly, given the all-white jury, and he is then sentenced to death and they carried that out on the 5th of January 1855 and here's one of the last public hangings in New South Wales because the British government had abolished public hangings in the 1840s. The colony's a bit slow to catch up but they decide yes this is this is now seen as a very barbaric practice um, 
but the official the uh, official sheriff up in Brisbane thought it was a good practice. He he said no, it's a way of teaching the natives this is our justice, you know. So what other whites saying this is awful, this is barbaric, this is violence, this is not having a good effect on public opinion. It's inflaming public opinion rather than reassuring the public. We'll do them from now on inside the jail walls. Uh, Dundley, though, was not. He was out in the open in front of the gates at the old female factory and hundreds of whites gathered to, uh, to witness this. Um, what was reassuring was that the Aboriginal community showed up. Of course, the whites had said, oh, they've only showed up because they're going to try and rescue him. And um, how I wish they had been able to. But of course, it, it, it was impossible because not only was every police constable on duty, they also had a detachment of native police on duty, uh, as well as the, the sheriff. Interestingly, the police magistrate didn't attend. The police magistrate at the last minute at the trial tried to um, stop the court finding Dunterley guilty, which is just extraordinary. Um, mm. But yeah, the evidence at the trial was was so ambiguous in terms of you know who wielded weapons at different occasions um and and the judge had some errors in fact in his in his final address to the jury so it's interesting the police magistrate wickham he tried to point this out but the judge gave him short shrift and um so anyway, i found it interesting then that Wickham didn't show up uh, at the at the execution. Yeah. He headed off to Sydney, mm. and it was Wickham who said to his servant, "Go straight home." He, his servant brought him in to get the to get the boat to Sydney, and uh, his his last instructions to the servant was, "Go straight home. I think the town will come under attack because so many Aboriginal he's, people had gathered." So it was white or Aboriginal? Was sorry. His servant Wickham. was yeah, Wickham's servant his, was. Oh, his servant was white. Yes, I've got his name somewhere. Um, <laughs> but, and, and, and and also just as um, you know, uh, Dundee was about to get hung. He was set up, you know, in what now is Post Office Square, and then just be, oh, I guess, in front of Post Office Square, sort of just beyond uh, where Anzac Square is, um, and then what now is Central Station, <clears throat> that yes. sort of hill part, um, that's where some of the mob was standing? Yes, that Central Railway Station was still all <coughs> bushland. <coughs> and <coughs> so Aboriginal people gathered there. And uh, were it, it there was high. Or no? Whether it was, there, was there a clear number or an estimate of how many? Uh, we only know there were lots. There must have been almost as many as there were Europeans to witness it. I mean, oh, really? bit, it would have been a bit hard for whites to judge because they were uh, partly screened by yeah. trees, yeah, which yeah, was yeah. pretty smart when you got the native police down near the gallows. Mm. Um, I don't know what the, the distance was of their rifles, yeah. but firing yeah. distance, but I think it would have been quite a few hundred yards. Mm. So they, they are screened. They're not so screened, though, that Dunderley can't see them. And Dunderley supposedly calls to his wife. He sees his wife there. And some accounts say he sees Billy Barlow there. And he does, his, he, when he, he initially gets up on the gallows and appeals to some whites saying that he knows in the crowd saying, you know, you've got to stop this. You know, it's not me. Mm. And then, you know, he's, he realised that's not going to happen. And he appeals to his people. He's what does he say? People there. Um, he supposedly says uh, to avenge his death. He calls on his wife saying, 
um, you must avenge my death. I, I'm sorry, Bo, I do have some wording in the book and it's just... No, 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 no that's okay. That's okay because, the message. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, that's okay uh, because that, that's, I remember, you know, um, um, R.O.P., you know, Uncle Sam Watson, I remember every year at the Dundalee commemoration, he would mention, yes. you know, when he was on the gallows. Um, yes. He looked to his mob and like they... Yes. Whatever else he was saying, it was very strongly heard that he was that, uh, that he said that yes. as well. Yes, mm. yes, and he, and he said it in language, and mm. um, people, whites in the crowd who spoke Gubby Gubby were able to interpret it, and so it mm. was later. Um, it, you know, there was a report in the paper that he'd called on, and he especially mm. supposedly mentioned Wumbunga, "You must avenge my death," and he's he's mm. looking not as blaming the whites; he's looking to say. You know, because I was handed over, so to speak, it is it is the Aboriginal politics that he's focusing on that he shouldn't have ever been, you know, handed over to the authorities. Like that in itself, like like that in itself, just speaks to um, the humility that you know Aboriginal people have had taken away from us, but have in in that time that you know we're not like you know. I'll appeal to his white followers, you know, um, they are subsequently going to kill me, but, you know, to my mob, you know what I mean? I was handed over yeah. by a black fella and, you know, whether, whether or not it's, it's the payback thing to, to his other fella, you know, like, um, and, and I'm yeah. sure, and I'm sure there were, there, there were uh, insurrections and whatnot, or maybe around this time due to the death of Dunderley, but, you know, from what I was gathering from what you were saying, he was subsequently saying like, you know, I was handed over by a trader, um, you know, sort him out. You yeah. know, what was the sort of the main message, you know, like him sort of going over the part where, you know, like let's go to war with all these white people. Well, well I guess yeah. in, in saying revenge me, he does as well. Yeah, and I think he's also saying it should be our law. It's our country, yeah. Yeah. it's our it's law, a, yeah. not theirs. Mm. Even though he's about to die at the hands of English law. He, he made it clear in the court he had no respect for English law. <laughs> And he's still saying, even at the gallows, it is my mm. country, my law, avenge me according to our law. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it's a great statement indirectly of yeah. sovereignty. Definitely. You know? Definitely. Um, well, at the beginning, like, we're just sort of in the back end of this, of our yarn as well. And so I've got a few things that I want to ask. Um, the first thing was, you know, where where did Dunderley sit in his 40-year resistance? You know, so there was Multagora, Moppy, Dunderley, and then was there anything after that as well, you know, when he said, revenge me, you know, what were there, yes. who was next? Yes, well, Billy Barlow. Um, mm. Billy Barlow uh, was another um, warrior fighting man mm -hmm. from Bribe Island. Uh, he's already come to the prominence of authorities by about 1852. Um, I went looking for um, his police report uh, recently and um, they didn't tell me his height. They didn't give me any markings. They just told me that he was very good looking. <laughs> so I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, the Brisbane yeah. police description of this Aboriginal man who's now wanted, uh, very good looking. And he was, uh, when they did that police report, he, they were also after his uh, companion whose name was um, Muller, Muller or Muller. And Muller, uh, they just said he had some smallpox scars, but sadly, um, I didn't get any further description of either man, but you know, um, 
I just found that really so, interesting. So that's Billy Barlow. No. Billy Barlow, who, who his, was also a Bribey yeah. Islander. Yeah. So if I, if I do, I'd love to know more about him. If I do um, an episode on him, I'm going to call that the good looking warrior. That episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that's it. And uh, yeah. Um, you know, so, so there was a, um, a young men's, well, again, I'm, I'm, I've, deduced from the fact that the newspaper mm. report said there were all these young young Aboriginal men gathered around Dundalee and another elder is mentioned uh, near um, Kash what today we call Kashmir. This is back in 1852. And um, uh, Michelow comes to Dundalee and says, I want you to avenge the fact that those whites put me in jail. And Dundalee mm. says no and stops him attacking a white woman who was present uh, on, on her cattle station. And um, after that, Niccolo goes to Billy Barlow. So Billy Barlow had come to the attention of the police. That's why they had that police report and that description of him back in 1852. But when Dundalee's arrested, it is Billy Barlow who organises resistance around Brisbane. Mm. And the newspapers say it's like um, having Aboriginal infantry in the suburbs. There are so many young Aboriginal men. We are nervous. Why are mm. there all these Aboriginal men gathering in the suburbs. So how long did it continue after Dundalee uh, passed? Um, uh, that kind of activity in the suburbs um, stops after the execution. I mean, it stops mm. being reported. I don't know what else might have been happening. But yeah. while Dundalee's being held, I think it's Billy Barlow who organises yeah. the death of the Harbour Master's crew. So ha white mm. men in the Harbour Master's crew go missing. Actually, I'm sorry, it's not the whole crew two white men who'd been part of the Harbour Master's crew and are now mm. um, working as, as fishermen or whatever in the bay go missing mm. and their boat washes up. And um, I think that's linked. I think that Billy Barlow was aware of Dundalee's attack on the Soyuz in 1847 of the mm -hmm. need to defend Aboriginal women. And those two men go missing. We don't know what happened to them. Um, and then there's another attack um, on an island in the bay. This was on um, in 1859. And a young uh, Aboriginal man, Billy Dingy, um, and his companion kill three white dugong fishermen. And it is very clear that this was for the rape of their wives. Mm. Um, they were basically abducted. But the, the interesting uh, story is that the reason why these young Aboriginal men went in a boat with these white men who subsequently... They, they go in a boat with their wives and children because the white men promised to take them north. They want, they're on their way to the Bunya gathering. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is all happening in the summer of 1859, December, January, December, 1859, January, 1860. And um, it's because the whites say, I, you have to come with me. I've got a warrant for Billy Barlow's arrest. If you don't come with me, I'm going to go and get Billy Barlow. So yeah. the young men, go in this boat, they then at gunpoint have their wives sexually assaulted. And there's an amazing story about how Billy Dingy then uh, has to separate the white men to kill each of them separately. Mm. Um, it's quite extraordinary. And then one of the white men's body washes up. And this, the only reason we know about this is that meant there was in an inquest. So often if whites mm. just disappeared, there would be no inquest. And so we've got no evidence about what was actually happening here. Mm, but this mm. case was great because the white, the Aboriginal men, again, aware of their own righteousness and legal behaviour, mm. um, tell the story to Tom Petrie. 
I guess they do it for two mm -hmm. reasons. They mm -hmm. do it because they're justified and they do it because they don't want reprisals against mm -hmm. their community. Well, so they, they mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, I was just going to mention, uh, just on like another completely separate note as well. And I said to you, I, and I said, I said this to you off air uh, at the beginning uh, when we first started chatting as well. A friend of mine wrote a book called um, um, "Surviving New England," and and, mm -hmm. and there's a part within that after the Mile Creek massacre, there was all these uh, insurrections um, in and around uh, the New England area just after that. You know, knowing that, um, I guess, one, in celebration that, you know, white men were, were, were tried and hung and, you know, them thinking that there is somewhat fair balance within yes. the system, um, yes. you know, uh, you know, not to, I guess not, not for them to say, hey, we can just go out and, you know, and, and do these actions. But, you know, um, for what has happened to us, you know, there is some justice. Yeah. And, 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 you know, all throughout this conversation, you've said, you know, Dunderley, you know, didn't want, you know, crops on his land, you know, uh, didn't want the abduction and the abuse of, of young women and, and, and young boys and, and, you know, like what you did to, you know, to our mob, like, mm. <clears throat> um, by, by our law, you know, we're supposed to punish you. So everything, mm. you know, you, you know, that happens, you know, uh, that, that has happened in our conversation right now, you know, is due to the, the law and the respect that these, uh, men and women have you know for their own culture you know to say hey mm. you know i'm gonna <clears throat> you know you did this to my family or you did this you, you broke our law so you know and then mm. you know um powers i guess you know european you know um powers become more stronger the population become more yeah. stronger and you start seeing you know um the imbalance you know yes. um of power uh and how it shifts and and all those other things as well um, yeah, there are hundreds of yeah. settlers arriving in the mid 1850s, boatload after boatload, just mm. bringing in more settlers. Mm. Yeah. So uh, yep. Go, sorry. So they're newcomers who don't know the Aboriginal history around Brisbane. You know, mm. the first whites got to know the Aboriginal elders. They knew who was important. These are newcomers who don't know anything. And the, the whole discourse starts to change. So, yeah, Billy Barlow, um, the other amazing thing he did was he did finally get the ex-convict who had assaulted the um, Aboriginal girl from Strabrook Island. And mm -hmm. it's amazing what he does. He has to engineer a situation, has to wait till they come onto his country. And then he has to engineer a situation where he can get mm -hmm. these two ex-convicts on their own. And um, it's incredible. But of course, it gets written up in colonial history as you see how treacherous these people are. You can't be alone in the bush with them. They're alone in the bush with him because they wanted him to show them some cedar. They wanted to go out and log beautiful cedar trees on mm. the Kabulta River. Um, but uh, Barlow has a completely different agenda and he does finally get a man called Peter Grant, mm. uh, who I haven't been able to directly link to the attack on the girls, but it's perfectly feasible given his friendship network his mates mm. and uh, a man called peter glenn and glenn actually again ends up surviving the attack but um he's back and he's recovered and back in brisbane and gets drunk one night and falls in the river and drowns within a few weeks after barlow's attack so um he kind of does you know he, he he gets terrible injuries and dies mm. soon after mm. Um, so as far as yeah. I know, they never get Barlow. Awesome. <laughs> Barlow yeah. lives out his days, I think. I, I haven't got... Do, do you know many working. other people? Oh, I'll have to talk to you um, um, yeah. when we start recording just to get more, a, bit, a bit more info about uh, Billy Barlow. Um, you know, we'll sort of shift the conversation now. 
Um, I remember mm. when we originally had some conversations, um, you were part of, uh, I guess, this friction uh, in the early 90s, I think, maybe, or, or, or earlier about uh, uh, the history wars. I remember we spoke mm. a, a bit about that, you know, um, you know, conservative historians in this country not wanting to tell the story or just, or just, you know, thinking that it's a myth of, you know, what the accounts of what Dunderley did or even the massacres as well. Um, could mm. you tell us a bit about, you know, um, uh, those times and um, how important it was to sort of, you know, be at the forefront of, you know, those discussions about changing the na uh, that narrative? Yes. Um, that was extraordinary that back in the 90s, um, there was an attempt to deny all this. And so there were personal attacks on Henry Reynolds, the historian who first charted mm -hmm. just this extraordinary history. Personal attacks on Lyndall Ryan, uh, who had looked still, still at... Still doing the, amazing uh, work as well. Shout out to Lyndall. Yes, yes definitely. on Mile Creek. Yeah, mm -hmm. but her earlier work had been on Tasmania. Mm -hmm. And so... The, uh, the white conservative who, who led the charge against these two historians was Keith Winshuttle, a retired academic, yeah. who just, I mean, his ignorance of Aboriginal culture was just extraordinary. And um, I mean, I think what the really good thing that came out of this is historians have just done, determinedly set out to chart just how much violence had happened. So Lyndall's gone on to develop that extraordinary massacre map. map yep. Mm. Um, but also we're getting more detailed accounts from all around the country. I guess um, the more interest, the interesting direction that the young scholars are going in is they're putting much more emphasis on the military aspects of mm. the invasion of Australia. So, um, and I'm going to struggle to remember names, but um, interesting book came out on Sydney saying um, historians of my generation and older downplayed the role of the military had played around Sydney. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I actually don't think we did. I think that's the difference in in how the story gets told. And I mm -hmm. think that's really interesting to know that young Australians think we haven't explained that fully, the extent to which the military were involved in, in the occupation of Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, there's a lot more work being done in on that. Whereas I, I was just, I, whereas I was motivated, as I said, I was came at it from a legal history perspective and also because I wanted to understand Dundley. I wanted to mm. explain, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't fight the way uh, Multogra did. He, he, he was, it was different. It was, it was, I'm going to respond. If something happens in my country or to my people, I will respond and I will respond according to my law. Um, whereas Multagra was, as I said, no, we, we're, we're going to war, we're going to stop you wherever we can. Hmm. Um, and I guess that was easier for Multagra because the occupation of his country was a bit different, you know, the way the whites moved across it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the new historians, I, I, the, the debate about the frontier wars, I think, has been won. The very fact that hmm. um, we're now, it's now going to be taught in Queensland schools. Whereas back in 1991, when Wayne Goss was Premier, he actually prevented the schools from using the term invasion. He actually mm. said, no, you're not to use that language. Um, whereas now it's, it's, uh, it's accepted and it is going to be taught. Mm. I just hope it's taught well, um, because although historians have started telling all these stories in details, it is very much a story of many nations around the country. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to need people to tell all those local histories. And, um, you know, I mean, I think there's, 
I, I hope you get time, Bo, to tell the Kalkadoon story one day. But I, I definitely want to tell that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, it's 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 amazing. But it just means we've got examples of every kind of fighting and mm. every kind of response. It wasn't. <clears throat> there were Aboriginal people who tried negotiation. There were Aboriginal people mm. who tried, uh, you know, guerrilla warfare. And guerrilla mm. warfare is probably the most predominant response. Um, and then there are people like Dundley saying our way of fighting, our terms. Um, and mm. then right down to the Kulkadoon saying, mm. mounting a, 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 a full um, uh, infantry assault. Mm -hmm. um, well, in the, in the second and the third episode that I've done so far, uh, the first episode I, I speak to a Palawa brother who uh, works at the museum down there um, and, lives in, and has studied and, and obviously knows the local history about um, the Black Walls and stuff. And, and, and we briefly spoke, and spoke about... Um, about Wallia, and then in the third episode, I, I have a chat with um, an Aboriginal artist by the name of Julie Dowling, who painted a lot of. Um, who, who I, I think uh, for around eighteen years has sort of um, uh, done like fine art pieces on different Aboriginal warriors, Dundalee, I think Multagara, um, um, Windradine, Pemwe, all these different. So, yeah. so, so we. So I got on the program to have a chat um, about uh, her painting of of Wallia as well. You know, um, mm. who I'm sure is is one of many you know average women who fought um, across this continent and 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 in some parts led um, you know uh, the resistance um, as well. Mm. Um, in the context of Brisbane, um, and, and I guess you know the, the other place that we mentioned, um, how important you know, or how has that sort of shaped um, you know our parts of you know or how has you know that, that those 40 years shaped you know southeast queensland and you know somewhere like Wallia, you know and, and all these other warriors how have they sort of shaped um you know uh the history in this country yeah i mean i think it's really been interesting that um that because there was this coincidence between this period in british politics with the with the opening up of brisbane that the policing emphasis has been remembered, but rather than, you know, that's why it is important that these new young historians are saying, it's warfare, it's military, you know, you historians who, who need to emphasize this more. Um, because um, I think the fact that they use the language of policing made it easier to hide this history. Mm. So yeah, the fact is that the suburbs of Brisbane mm. well, required just, native police detachments. Yeah. Well, well, that just goes back to what you said before, you know, when, you know, uh, when the British were saying, oh, we don't want our empire to be, you know, built on bloodshed, which, you know, um, all empires yeah. are. And that's, you know, the, the yeah. first 40 years of, sorry, the first hundred and, 50 years uh, of this mm. you know, of this country were built um on as well um so i guess any way you look at it you know whether it's sort of a military sort of uh, invasion or sort of you know the widespread of settlers as well you know um uh, you know in some yeah. respects i think queensland so after aiding um when they set up the native police the second time like it had operated in the 1840s in victoria mm. and then they rebuild it in 1848 but they use this language, police, native police force. But, you know, in some respects, it's worse than if it had been military. And in fact, mm -hmm. one, of the, um, one of the politicians who gave evidence, they held a select committee, which is like a royal commission, into the native police force in 1861. And McConnell, who, uh, no, I'm sorry, O'Connell, Maurice Charles O'Connell, who went on to become Speaker of the Upper House, 
he said, I'm not going to vote for this report. You know, this is disgusting. You know, if you want to go to war, you, you do it with the army and you do it on military terms. And so there would have been some honour. There would have been some rules of engagement. Mm. There would have had to have been a declaration. Instead, they just keep pretending that there's no problem. They're just going to use a, a, a policing response. But the native police operate outside the boundaries of the town police. Mm -hmm. They don't operate on normal policing rules. They don't operate on normal military rules. So mm -hmm. they're, in many respects, I think, it, yeah, it's worse. I remember talking to some South African academics at a, at a seminar in Sydney University. And after I gave a paper about what was happening up here, it was the white South Africans came up to me and said, we find your history, you know, spine chilling. It is, it is so deceptive. It is so cruel. Um, mm. To have white Africans, South Africans <laughs> tell you that, you know, gives the sense of the brutality of, of our system Completely. and the way the rest of the world views it. It was so dishonest and deceitful. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, and I forgot those two academics who in 2014 came out uh, with some papers to say, um, you know, these are the numbers alone in Queensland, which is which was almost 60 eight or 67,000, you know, Aboriginal people, you know, all your people, Aboriginal and Aboriginal people yes. that were killed in, the, in those sort of frontier conflicts as well, you know, and I, and Ray, Ray I, Evans and Oster Jensen. Yes. Were the and I, and I, and yeah. I remember we, we I just, um, I think it was just around, um, um, oh, sorry, this was just around, Oh, like I just recently, you know, uh, we posted some stuff online and, um, I spoke to Linda Ryan about it as well. And she was saying like the way that, um, you know, they got their research was, you know, um, it wasn't just um, outland, like, you know, just uh, massive massacres, you know, these were mm. you know, one-off killings that, you know, that, that mm. native police did and, and, and sort of these dispa dispatchments were doing, you know, so, um, yeah, like, like the, the way that the, these sort of um, uh, police forces were set up or, or, or the work they were carrying out as well. You know whether it was just mm. sort of you know mass sort of poisonings or shootings or you know just sort of you know killing one or two or three or even you know five or whatever here there and everywhere you know mm. um you know uh, uh to show the numbers of, of how many people you know um mm. uh, you know, died in queensland as well um and i guess the archaeologists are working on that now Bo. did you know yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, there's yeah, a big yeah. project yeah mm. try and mm. you know reinforce those figures or mm. test those figures from Orster Jensen and Evans and, and give more archaeological yeah, evidence yeah, yeah, yeah. to back up there. Yeah, you know, I um, remember I had a chat with... Um, um, Lindley, Lindley I, Wallace? I or, think it was. Oh, I forgot it was. And then an Aboriginal uncle that was going around travelling with them as well and taking them to, uh, to some parts Fantastic. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so Great. It was, um, no, it was interesting points um, as well that they brought up as well. Um, but, you know, I think um, I've taken enough of your time today. Yeah. Uh, I want to say thank you for joining us on the program, um, you know, on Frontier War Stories. Um, where can people uh, get your book? And if there's any other stuff that you've written about, you know, uh, the frontiers, uh, the frontier wars, um, what are they? Where, where can we sort of find that stuff? Uh, well, the research on Billy Barlow following up some events that happened after Dunsley, that's going to be, I hope it will be out soon, it's going to be in the, the Australian Indigenous Dictionary of Biography. I don't know if you know about that project, no, no. but that's going to be freely available and online. It's a, a project where um, there's already an Australian Dictionary of Biography that charts significant Australians from the past. This is going to be significant Indigenous Australians from the past. Awesome. Um, 
So that will be online soon. That's coming out of Australian National University. And, uh, and Multagora will be in that Moppy as well. Um, and then, yeah, so then, uh, but uh, the book on Dundalee, that's uh, just called Warrior. I mean, you read out its full subtitle, mm. but yeah, essentially Warrior, published by Alan and Unwin. You can usually get it at Avid Reader. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the best way is to order it online. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I was really disappointed to hear recently that um, Brisbane City Council Libraries no longer stack it, st uh, no longer holding it, given that it's a history of early Brisbane, but mm. um, definitely at the State Library and, and mm. definitely at the Sunshine Coast Libraries as well. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you for, you know, coming on and having a yarn with us. And, you know, uh, the people that are listening, you can definitely look forward uh, to me and Lendl chatting again soon when we do an episode on the uh, Good Looking Warrior. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, we'll definitely do that there sometime <laughs> okay. soon. Then. Yeah, no, okay. but a big thanks for that, Lendl. Um, Libby, yeah, no worries. Sorry, sorry Libby, yeah. <laughs> no worries. Talk to you soon. Bye. Uh, definitely. How do I...